Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk for America After the Fall with Sarah Churchwell, who is the Professorial Fellow in American Literature and Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. Sarah is the author of a number of books, including Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby, and The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Her, liter her literary journalism has appeared widely, including The Guardian, The New Statesman, New York Times Book Review, and Financial Times. Sarah also comments regularly and widely on arts, culture, and politics for UK television and radio, and has judged many literary prizes, including the 2008 Orange Now Bailey's Prize for Women's Fiction and the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Sarah's focus is now on writing a book about Henry James. For today's talk, Sarah will examine the political, cultural, and aesthetic context to work by Grant Wood, Edward Hopper, Reginald Marsh, and Georgia O'Keeffe, as well as exploring films of the period and their relation to the American art of the Great Depression. And without further ado, I'll welcome Sarah. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Can you hear me at the back? Is this okay? Okay, great. Um, as Sarah said, I am primarily um, an expert in literature and film, but um, I have a deep and abiding passion for the American art of the 20th century as well, and in particular, the art of this period. As many of you will know, this exhibition, um, it's such a privilege, and I have to say, the Academy has hung it just beautifully. I think it's so well done. Um, this exhibition was um, developed in collaboration with the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, where many of these paintings have their permanent home. And I didn't have to look that up, um, because I come from Chicago, and I grew up uh, spending much of my misspent adolescence in wandering the quarters of the Art Institute looking at these very paintings. And as somebody who has now lived here for almost 20 years, which is very bizarre, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, I have to say, it's such a thrill um, to see these incredibly iconic American works of art in this new uh, context and frame in, here in London. And I was actually privileged enough to see it uh, in Paris in the autumn as well, in its first stop at L'Orangerie. And um, I hope there are no Parisians in the audience, and please don't tweet that I just said this, but I really do think that this, is, um, this exhibition is, is hung to my mind um, more successfully than L'Orangerie, so, but keep that under your hats. Um, I don't want to go offending the Parisians. Um, and, and honestly, because I was so impressed by the way they did it, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't really come in expecting it to be bettered, but I really think that it has been. And uh, in particular, um, I think the exhibition does a good job of drawing out the themes that, to my mind, were really salient as I began thinking about, uh, about doing this lecture, which, as you might imagine, I was really delighted to be asked to do, um, given all the personal connections, really, that it uh, creates for me. So, uh, without further ado, the most famous American painting of all time has just taken its first trip to Europe. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost 80 years old now, um, and uh, I, you know, that's over 80 years old. I can't do math. It's uh, 90 years old, sorry. It's almost 90 years old. And um, it was painted by Grant Wood, an Iowa native. So Iowa is the state next door to Illinois. It was, uh, it was painted by 
Grant Wood and exhibited at the Art Institute of Chicago in 1930, where it was um, instantly purchased. And it's been in the permanent collection of the Art Institute uh, ever since. It is difficult, I think, to look at uh, an image this familiar and see it afresh. And I think that's one of the great virtues, of course, of seeing something in the original. You see details you didn't see. You see light that you couldn't see. Um, you get a sense, certainly with this painting, of the technical proficiency of it when you look at it up close, what Wood actually um, accomplished. I always think that this painting is sort of like the American Mona Lisa in that the couple is enigmatic and everybody keeps wondering what exactly it is that they're thinking and what exactly it is that their expressions are meant to denote. But we have uh, clearly this, uh, an emphasis on, on facial expression and on portraiture and, um, and, and on trying to um, think about the moods and the questions that encountering a couple like this might, um, might invoke. People have argued about whether this is a satirical painting, whether Wood is laughing at his rural Iowa farming couple, or whether it's nostalgic, a longing backward glance at a simpler time that by 1930 was passing. Is it celebrating an American pastoral, an image of a Jeffersonian agrarian idyll, or is it mocking it? Is it an elegy for a passing way of life? or a joke at the expense of a couple who has been passed over by history. Now, as it happens, in, real, in what I think of as real life, which is back in Chicago where this painting uh, lives, it hangs next door to what is almost certainly the other most famous American painting of all time, which did not come over, Edward Hopper's 1942 Nighthawks. Now the Art Institute actually does hang them. They're not quite side by side, but they are next door to each other. And I was interested in the fact that the scope of this exhibition is, is pretty much, uh, uh, um, what's the word I want? Like benchmarked, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean, it's, um, you know, I, what the hell is the word for it? Uh, but either, you know, it's a, a one end and the other, and there are the things, the book ended, for heaven's sake, the things that hold up books, which I couldn't come up with the word for. Um, my specialty is literature, you'll be happy to hear. I'm, I'm really good with words. Uh, book ended, thank you very much. Uh, heaven's to Betsy. Um, that doesn't augur well, does it? Um, anyway, but it is, it is book ended. These are the dates, right? So this exhibition ends in 1941, so Hopper is technically uh, just beyond the scope of it. And 1941, presumably chosen because it's the year of America's entry into the Second World War. And for many, that will be the, um, the technical ending of the Great Depression as America shifts into the war industry and, uh, and the post-war prosperity that that would usher in. But I wanted to smuggle Hopper in. I was, obviously, Hopper has a presence, and I'll come back to Hopper. He's certainly re represented and well represented in this exhibition. But I wanted to smuggle him in, not just because he's iconic, um, but because this image in particular, when juxtaposed with American Gothic, seems to me to symbolize not only the bookends, see I can remember, um, of the dates of this exhibition, but also its twin themes. Um, the exhibition, I think, does a beautiful job of evoking the way in which American art in the 1930s really was moving back and forth between ideas about uh, rural America as exemplified by American Gothic and ideas about urban America as exemplified by 
Nighthawks. So I just want to have those two images kind of hanging over my remarks, reminding us of the dates. Um, okay, Grant Wood's 1930, I mean, and the exhibition's 1929, but we're 1929 to 1941. And those two um, iconic images of urban, uh, uh, urban existence, um, I'm going to put it in broad terms because there are lots of depictions of urban life uh, that, that aren't completely you know, uh, uh, reduced to what Hopper is doing here. Um, and then also this idea of American rural life and what one was to make of it in the 1930s. So first, a little bit more about American Gothic. Um, there are ways in which people have talked about this as a, a, almost a novelistic painting. Uh, it's kind of fictional. It's fictional in a couple of ways. It basically looks like a 19th century picture, but it's painted in the 20th century. It looks naive. It looks as if there's not a lot going on in it, but it's actually incredibly sophisticated technically. The title is ambiguous. American Gothic, does that refer to the couple, to the house with its Gothic window? Um, does it suggest that there might be terrible things in the sense of the Gothic tradition going on in that upstairs attic room? Does it suggest in the, in the tradition of Gothic literature, a la Jane Eyre or you know, Edgar Allan Poe or the Mysteries of Udolpho, that there's some terrible secret hidden behind that curtain in the top window? Does it suggest that, um, and it's important to remember that the word uh, Gothic was a fairly familiar slang um, in the first half of the 20th century, certainly, simply for old-fashioned, right? It would be the equivalent of calling something medieval, which, of course, is what it means. So if you said that couple is medieval, you might think that that was a literal depiction if they were in medieval clothing or, or a literal meaning, or you might think that it was a figurative way of saying that they're old-fashioned, right? So American Gothic might just be a phrase that says they're out of date. And certainly to be holding a pitchfork um, with its sense of, uh, you know, of the most primitive of farming methods in 1930, as America was embracing modernity, um, you could certainly make the argument that, and people have, that this is, if not, if not a brutally satirical, some people think this is brutally satirical, that Wood is really going after this couple. Um, others see in it something gentler but still a kind of tongue-in-cheek poking of fun at something that, that is outdated, that is American Gothic. But there's another reason why uh, he called it American Gothic as well, which is that he painted it in the style of what was once known as Gothic painting, um, otherwise known as the Flemish primitives. And the Flemish primitives, as I'm sure I don't have to tell a well-educated audience in the Royal Academy, are the uh, early Dutch paintings, I'm, I, I suppose you're supposed to say Netherlands paintings, but I will say Dutch, um, paintings from the, um, and Flemish, from the 15th and 16th century, particularly around Bruges, Ghent, um, that uh, uh, part of the Netherlands, and of, of which the, the most famous example is surely Jan van Eyck's uh, the Arnolfini portrait. And you can see here the way in which, and here I think we have to see Grant Wood having a sense of humor, um, the way in which his, his, uh, his very prim and puritanical couple is referencing this famous image of, um, of a couple uh, who are, it's an engagement portrait, as I'm sure you all know, um, but uh, it looks from a, from a traditionalist's, certainly from a puritanical point of view, as if the engagement's coming a little late. Um, and of course, that's always been one of the, the kind of, um, again, I, I, 
we can argue about whether this painting was intended humorously and art historians have, um, but I think certainly Wood, when he paints American Gothic, is, uh, is having a little joke uh, comparing his couple to the Arnolfini portrait. Wood had, had come to Europe and studied um, the techniques of Flemish painting, so he's using the techniques of Flemish primitives of so-called Gothic painting to paint his Gothic couple standing in front of a Gothic window. So it is American Gothic many times over. Now, Grant Wood painted other paintings. The American Gothic is far and away the most famous one, and most people, if you were on some kind of quiz show, it's the only one that anybody could name. But there are many other uh, wonderful paintings that he did, and I'm really delighted that some of them have also made the voyage across, including my old favorite, Daughters of Revolution. I adore Daughters of Revolution. Um, I, get, I have a personal relationship to them. I have a, I, we, we didn't, when I was um, in high school, we didn't do the equivalent of GCSEs and A-levels, but we had to write big essays, so the equivalent of a big thesis. And the equivalent of my GCSE uh, essay, I did on this painting, um, and, uh, and a poem, which I'm about to bring up too, just for old time's sake. Um, comparing the two, I'm happy to say that I'm better at analyzing paintings now than I was when I was 15. You'll be happy too, I'm sure. Um, the, the, a few things that are worth noting about this painting, the, the, cup, the, the trio, the, the uh, society that Wood is invoking here is obviously, the, well, I don't know if it's obvious outside of America, but is Daughters of the American Revolution, which is a, uh, it, it still goes on to this day, it's a conservative genealogical society that is, um, it's, it, it can be um, white supremacist. Well, not white supremacist. I'm probably taking it too strong. It can be racist. It's, it, can, it was kind of leaning towards eugenicism. It's certainly celebrating white Anglo-Saxon purity on, on a level that, that um, makes many, many people uncomfortable uh, for good reason. And, and, it's, and it's, um, it's an exclusive society. And, it's an, and so you have to be descended from somebody who you can prove actually fought in the revolution, and there will be all kinds of papers that have to demonstrate this. It's the parallel to the Mayflower Society, where you have to prove that your ancestors came over on the Mayflower. And those are the two aristocratic societies of America. And what Grant Wood said about this painting, which is intended to be satirical, uh, I think quite clearly, we can see that, uh, that these are figures of fun, these women. He called them his Tory gals, um, and wrote of this painting that he didn't approve of anybody trying to set up an aristocracy of birth in a republic. Um, in order to poke fun of, at them, he does a couple of things with American iconography that I would point out to you. They are uh, placed in front of Emanuel Leutz's famous painting, iconic painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. Emanuel Leutz painted that in the 19th century. He was, in fact, a German-born immigrant. They would not have had tea with the German-born immigrant whose painting they are standing in front of and celebrating. Um, also, his heroic activity and energy is contrasted against their stasis and their primness and their complacency. Um, clearly, the, the title the title is ironic. The, the, these, these three women, I think it's safe to say, are not being depicted as revolutionary figures. Uh, their conservatism, in other words, and the, and, the, and the inherent irony of having a conservative society that pretends to be celebrating revolution is what Wood is really getting at. And the really beautiful detail of the middle woman holding that bone china heirloom teacup. And of course, what is the most symbolic aspect of the American Revolution? It's dumping tea in Boston Harbor. She's not dumping tea, she's sipping it out of her lovely cup, right? So he's having a lot of fun with them. But one of the things that, um, that this painting is also exemplifying 
and that Wood is uh, engaging with is a direct effort by um, American artists during the Great Depression to try to um, to try to engage with the problems of of uh, dissolution and um, and atomization and the the kind of um, the the sense that that American society was was not to put uh, to find a point on it was crumbling around them um, to try to shore up its foundations with certain kinds of national artistic movements, but also with historical and indeed with deliberately mythological movements. And so one of the things that happened was a return to a sense of American mythmaking, uh, an attempt to forge uh, some American myths or to restore, resuscitate some faith in American myths that, um, that, that might um, uh, energize the national scene a little bit, and as I say, restore a bit of faith. So one famous example of that is Grant Wood's um, the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. I think there's less ambiguity about this painting. It doesn't seem to me that it's very satirical. Um, except insofar as it, as it suggests that American history might be a kind of little music box, right? I mean, it's all very kind of miniaturized and very cute uh, and twee um, in a way that, I, that, that is clearly deliberate. And then the, the isolation of that figure of, of Paul Revere riding out there. Now, as... Grant Wood uh, knew very well the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere what is indeed a mythical uh, American story. It happened, Paul Revere got on a horse, but that's about as far as it goes. Um, and it became mythologized, not after the Revolutionary War. Sorry, I'm never gonna call it the War of Independence, so you may as well just get used to that right now. It's the Revolutionary War. Um, and I do, I do sometimes say when people correct me, they go, the War of Independence. And I'm like, do you tell French people to say the French War of Independence? Because I don't think you do. Um, I'm going to say American Revolution. So the, um, after the American Revolution, Paul Revere was not mythologized. He wasn't part of the story until 1861. Now, those of you who know your American history will know what happened in 1861. And it wasn't the Revolutionary War. It was the Civil War. And what happened was that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem called Paul Revere's Ride, and he wrote it specifically in order to urge people to the Union cause. So it's actually, it's a very deliberate piece of propaganda about American history with Longfellow inventing effectively, very effectively, um, and in effect, an American myth that would enable him to rally the troops, literally and figuratively, for the American Civil War on the Union side. And it became so instantly popular that generations of school children in America grew up reciting it in school, um, up, up through, my parents can recite this poem. So, I mean, it was basically my generation that it stopped. So I can only do bits and pieces of it. Um, but I'll do a little so you can hear the galloping um, ballad rhythm of it. And it's, it's so famous in America. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land and two if by sea, which is the famous phrase that has come down that even Americans who don't know the poem anymore uh, will know. One if by land and two if by sea and then Longfellow ends, you know the rest in the books you have read. So what he's doing here is very clearly signaling an existing story. He's, put, he's taking his poem and sending people back to the history books. In the book, you already know this story, guys, the poem ends. In the books you have read, how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane. We do like images 
images of Americans chasing the redcoats down the lane. Um, they're very popular in America. Um, and then uh, the very famous ending, um, and, it's a, and you can hear in the ending the great patriotic surge and the great call to a sense of American nation building uh, for born on the night wind of the past through all our history to the last. In the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeat of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. Right? Um, and so Wood is invoking that uh, mythical and also um, that sense of, uh, uh, as I say, of, of nation building and of a kind of nostalgic patriotism that depends on history um, as, a, as a response to the ravages of the Great Depression. Now, I said that uh, I did this essay comparing Daughters of American Revolution um, to a poem, and I want to bring it in, um, although I can see from my slides that something dropped out for which I apologize, but it's in... Um, it's downstairs, so I'll just signal it uh, to you. Um, and I want to, to, to mention this poem as well because it couldn't be more different from Longfellow. And it's very important. It's 1931, it's exactly the same moment. And it gives an indication of some other American artistic energies at the time. Um, this is a very angry poem by E.E. E. Cummings um, about a conscientious objector who he knew, it's, a, it's basically, it's based on a true story, uh, an experience of Cummings's in the First World War. Um, a conscientious, no, that's not right, somebody he read about. Anyway, it is a true story, and um, it's the story of a conscientious objector who was tortured to death by the American army for refusing to serve. And so Cummings wrote this very, very angry, um, not, it's not anti-patriotic, because I think it's patriotic to be angry at your country, but it's, a, it's you know, a, a, um, and ex he's excoriating uh, America for its uh, hypocrisy, and the poem is about this big gentle giant who is uh, tortured by the army because he's a pacifist. And at the end of the second long stanza, you'll see um, after he's begun to be um, beaten and tortured for refusing to fight, Cummings writes, Olaf being to all intents a corpse and wanting any rag upon what God unto him gave responds without getting annoyed, I will not kiss your fucking flag. Straightway the silver bird looked grave, departing hurriedly to shave, that's the general of course. But though all kinds of officers, a yearning nation's blue-eyed pride, their passive prey did kick and curse, until for where their clarion voices and boots were much the worse, and egged the first-class privates on his rectum wickedly to tease by means of skillfully applied bayonets roasted hot with heat, Olaf, upon what once were knees does almost ceaselessly repeat, there is some shit I will not eat. Our president, being of which assertion duly notified, threw the yellow son of a bitch into a dungeon where he died. Christ of his mercy infinite, I pray to see, and Olaf too, preponderatingly because, unless statistics lie, he was more brave than me, more blonde than you. Now, I apologize for swearing at everybody in the middle of a nice lunchtime lecture, but I want to bring this in for a couple of reasons. And the image that I meant to have after this, which seems to have dropped out, for which I apologize, is uh, downstairs, Peter Bloom's The Eternal City, um, which is the, the image of Mussolini, uh, green-faced Mussolini as a jack-in-the-box bursting into Rome and destroying it. Countering against the kind of patriotic energies of a Grant Wood and the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, we have some very real anger. Um, and some very clear, uh, uh, you know, criticisms isn't strong enough a word, um, 
uh, denunciations of American failures of courage, but also in particular, the reason why I want to bring this poem in in this context is because of the way that in 1931, people like Cummings could see where the eugenic, eugenicist Aryan project was going. The blondness is already an issue. It's clear that that's where the rise of fascism is going and that this is a different kind of call to arms. Um, so although America in the 1930s and indeed in the 1920s is often represented as an isolationist nation, it's very important to note how many of its uh, important artists were anything but isolationist and how many of them were responding to, um, to, to uh, certainly to European uh, history and uh, current events. And again, you can see that. I think it's beautifully done downstairs in the way that the exhibition um, juxtaposes on one wall American violence and on the other wall, uh, or sorry, depictions of domestic violence and on the other wall depictions of European violence in a sense that American painters were certainly responding to both. So, um, of course, the greater context of all of this, uh, much more than European fascism, as important as that is, uh, is the Wall Street crash. Now, sometimes people think that the uh, inequality of the Great Depression was caused by the Wall Street crash in 1929, um, but that's not actually right. Throughout, uh, it's the other way around. Uh, the rising inequality of the 1920s was what caused the crash of 1929. By, by 1929, before the crash, more than half of the American population lived below subsistence level, while the richest 1% owned 40% of the nation's wealth. Sound familiar? <laughs> Capital had been siphoned to the top, and the market crashed in October. Scott Fitzgerald in 1929 actually is, as far as I can tell, and this is a little detail that I'm very fond of, because. Um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was the first to notice this. I was working on Scott Fitzgerald as our crash happened in 2008, 2009, and I was reading this story, and, I, and it was during um, Occupy Wall Street, and I reread this story for the first time in a while, and I suddenly saw him having a conversation in a 1929 story between a French woman and an, so she's, she's speaking first, she's a French woman who's describing American women on the beach and she says, you can't tell who they are. They might be great ladies, they might be bourgeois, they might be adventuresses, they might be typists. They all look the same. And, uh, but they're acting as if they had all the money in the world. The American man responds, perhaps she will have someday. And the French woman says, that's the story they are told. It happens to one, not to the 99. That's why all their faces over 30 are discontented and unhappy. Fitzgerald is very clear that there's a problem here of the 1% um, because it was in the news in the 1920s just as it is in the news. Now people knew that the richest 1% owned 40% uh, of the nation's wealth. He published this story, The Swimmers, in the Saturday Evening Post on October 19th, 1929, and 10 days later, Wall Street crashed. Just a few key facts. I'm sure most of you know about the Depression, but just in case anybody wants a little uh, refresher, it was the most severe economic downturn of any Western country in modern history. Uh, in 1933, which was the worst year of the Depression, U.S. unemployment hit 25%, and nearly half the nation's banks failed. International trade declined during the period by 50%, and farmers were especially hard hit. They'd been struggling all the way through the 20s when the national prosperity had left them behind. Crop prices after the Depression, after the crash, uh, fell by as much as 60%, and as if those economic conditions weren't bad enough, they were exacerbated by a great 
uh, a, a great uh, environmental disaster, a devastating drought that hit the Great Plains in waves across the 1930s and resulted in what became known as the Dust Bowl. I just wanted to uh, give this other, in fact, I should have probably done this as an epigraph. This quotes the other quotation from Fitzgerald should have just been hovering over the top of the lecture. Um, the Republic could survive the mistakes of a whole generation, pushing the waste aside, sending ahead the vital and the strong, only it was too bad and very American that there should be all that waste at the top. And it's, again, it's from a story that nobody uh, much remembers anymore. So again, I want to have that image of waste and the, and the symbolic presence of that waste over, hanging over the next few slides. So there are many wonderful images downstairs responding. Upstairs, I keep saying downstairs, but we're downstairs. Upstairs, sorry. Good with picture, not so good with uh, geography. Um, uh, this is, uh, and it's been interesting to see how reviewers have responded to this painting. It's clearly, I think, one of the most striking, vivid, and, and kind of memorable uh, images, uh, really evoking the devastation caused by the Dust Bowl, um, erosion number two, Mother Earth laid bare. This is what happens when you have overplowing, when you have overfarming, and uh, and then, as I say, these these severe droughts that um, that created the the famous Dust Bowl. There are um, several images downstairs that evoke it. One that didn't get. Um, included is Joe Jones's Our American Farms, although there uh, is another Joe Jones image that I will return to. Um, but here's another image of uh, the Dust Bowl. These paintings are clearly in dialogue with documentary photographs. It's important to remember that by the 1930s, and, and really this is the first period in which this is true, certainly in American art, um, where um, mass magazines and newspapers had the, uh, the, the technology was there for photographs to be easily reproducible and clear in a way that they had never been before in mass market uh, um, periodicals, newspapers and magazines. And um, there's more color imagery than there used to be. But photographs are really starting to circulate in a way that just simply wasn't available to the general populace uh, at the same level. It's really in the 30s that documentary photography comes into its own. And so there are very famous, many you will know all of them, if not this one in particular, you'll certainly have seen lots of photographs like it, um, pictures of what the Dust Bowl actually looked like in formerly fertile, arable, um, uh, parts of the, the, the Plains Midwest. This, was, this had been uh, 30 years earlier, it had been rich farmland, and it was just uh, destroyed, and the so-called Dust Bowl stretched across all of the Great Plains, across a vast stretch of America from north to south and from um, basically from the, uh, the Mississippi all the way uh, west. And there are some other images of the Dust Bowl so it, uh, it extended from um, uh, southeastern Colorado and southwestern Kansas, crossed the panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma, so all the way down to the south, and millions of people's homes and livelihoods were destroyed. And of course, this was what caused the great wave of, of internal migration, most famously depicted in John, St John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, but, or Wrath, as you say, uh, but also, sorry, that wasn't mean to be mocking, just so you knew what I was talking about. Um, but we do say wrath. Um, and, um, and also Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, which uh, many of you will also know, the migrant workers there are, are migrating from uh, 
Dust Bowl conditions, and that's why in Of Mice and Men, the, um, the central couple, you know, their, their refrain is that they want to live off the fat of the land. That's the image of paradise, is to come to a place where you might be able to live off the fat of the land, um, because this is what you're actually looking at. And we have to have that image in our mind when we think about the, the novels of the, of the great internal migration. Now, I said that photographs and paintings start to become, start to, um, open a dialogue, an artistic and, and uh, iconic, iconographic, rather, um, dialogue in a way that hadn't existed before. One of the things that, so people talk about how in The Wizard of Oz, you know, there's this shift from black and white into the great technicolor of the land of Oz, so that there's a sense of shifting from reality, which is a bit blah, into you know, the gorgeous fantasy world of Oz. But in my experience, they rarely, if ever, talk about the fact that the specific reality that is being escaped is the reality of the Dust Bowl. And that, that imagery is one that MGM is bringing into the film there in ways that are drawing on documentary photographs of the time and that the audience would absolutely have recognized and responded to. This is part of a, a kind of slightly general uh, suggestion I want to make, but it's particularly true of the films um, in this movie, uh, in this movie, in this era, uh, which is that we should think about more than, in my experience, people do about reading movies within the moment they were made, rather than in terms of the moment that they're depicting. As American film came into its own in the 1930s in its classic era, it's really starting very interesting conversations with the art and literature of the period as well. Um, and it's also commenting on current history. So if I can get this. So here's the, one of the most iconic scenes. I keep using the word iconic, but for a reason, because these are all very iconic images. This one's short, so, sorry. Again, many of you will know this one. most of you have seen it, but what she says is, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. If I have to lie, cheat, steal, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. If we think about that as a civil war image, we have one reading of the scene, but if we think about it as something that is connected to depression era food is left, and then making this defiant promise that she'll never be hungry again, we might have different ideas about why Gone with the Wind was so popular in 1939. Um, now, of course, one of the reasons why, oh, and I should say as well that one of the things that um, the L'Orangerie exhibition did that I, that I did really like was that at the very end, as you walked out, they assembled a montage of film from the 1930s, uh, which they thought spoke to the exhibition in interesting ways. I thought they selected it really, really well. That was one of the images that they showed. And it gave a sense of how important film is uh, to the story that this exhibition is telling. 
And of course, that story comes out in many of the works of art themselves, including Reginald Marsh's 20 Cent Movie. I'm really pleased that Reginald Marsh is here. He's a great realist painter of the first half of the 20th century who's been virtually forgotten, um, but really des deserves rediscovery. Here we have 20 Cent Movie, and I said at the beginning when I was talking about Hopper's urban landscape that his vision of urban landscapes didn't necessarily uh, uh, correlate in every degree to all of the urban visions that we get in the exhibition. And, and it's really Marsh uh, that I was thinking of in particular because Marsh's images are so full of people and Hopper is famous for his images of urban isolation, urban anime. But it's, it's with Marsh that we get the sense of urban bustle and rush and in particular crowds, which surely are the great phenomenon of, uh, of contemporary urban life. Um, but you also get here a sense of how important the movies were to people, um, how much of popular culture was, uh, was, was defined by film culture in the 30s. You get characters here who are clearly modeling themselves on movie stars of the era. I'm particularly fond of the guy on the right because he looks exactly like Scott Fitzgerald and um, Reginald Marsh knew Scott Fitzgerald, so I always like to think that he's kind of smuggled in a little, a little kind of hat tip to Fitzgerald there in his little hoodlum who's standing there, this slick who's... Uh, who's presumably some kind of hustler. Um, but you can see in all of the, the advertisements there that everything uh, is, is mixed into this melange of, of urban life. Um, the, the photographs of movie stars, advertisements, ads for movies, ads for shows, and it's all there in that sense of energy and, and, uh, and, and chaos. Um, People have talked at great length about how important movies were to Depression-era audiences for the obvious reason of escapism. Um, in the middle of a depression, the Hollywood movies were giving people uh, much needed distraction, images of luxury and elegance and glamour, uh, hope for an alternative kind of a life or just two hours away from the miseries of their own existence. But uh, it's also important to note that uh, movies also offered physical escape, not just mental, psychological escapism. And that's why I think the title 20 Cent Movie is so important here. All you needed to get was 20 cents, which even in the Depression, lots of people could, I mean, plenty of people couldn't, but um, movies were relatively affordable in the Depression compared to how much they cost now. And so um, people could take shelter in movie theaters. They could sit there all day for 20 cents. They could get heat um, and warmth. They could get out of the rain. They could park their children there if they couldn't afford childcare, and their children could sit there all day. So movies actually performed a really important social function at the time. The movie houses uh, uh, created an important shelter from the depression physically as well as psychologically, which is worth thinking about. And here is Edward Hopper's great, one of my favorite American paintings of all time, Edward Hopper's New York movie, 1939, the wonderful image of the usherette lost in thought and bathed in light while the, uh, and again, that sense of isolationism even among a crowd, uh, not isolationism, heavens, she's not making a political statement, isolation uh, on her own, lost in thought, and then the crowd watching some movie that is invoked in the uh, top left corner um, where we get the silver screen. People have... Uh, hypothesized that the film that looks like it might be being depicted there, it's a little granular there for you to see, but it looks, it looks like it's probably a snowy mountain. And so people have wondered whether it was uh, Lost Horizon, 
um, from 1937, which has all these snowy mountains. The videos are fighting me enough that I'm just going to skip it. You can find stills if you haven't seen Lost Horizon. But of course, Lost Horizon is the film that gave us Shangri-La, the utopian paradise, the sense of an ideal world that you could get to at the top of the Himalayas. So what people have suggested is that uh, Hopper is juxtaposing this, uh, this isolated young woman with this image of a, of a fantasy paradise that's on the silver screen and of course the silver contrasted with the yellow light and her hair uh, where she's you know in this kind of little halo over here. Now for the most part, the, the uh, no not just for the most part, uh, exclusively the images that I have looked at in the first half of, uh, or the first part of this talk, it's more than half over, um, is, uh, have, uh, were uh, depictions of um, white people and white culture but of course, um, one of the great social uh, and aesthetic movements of uh, both the 1920s and the 1930s was the Harlem Renaissance and the, uh, the upsurge of energy and interest in and, and belief in celebration of um, African-American art, African-American life. And indeed, even when not being celebrated, a, a, a renewed or new, I should say rather, uh, attention being paid to the realities of African-American life during the Depression. So juxtaposed with Grant Wood's pastoral landscapes, we get pictures like Thomas Hart Benton's uh, Cotton Pickers, where he notices that cotton pickers tended to be African-American and not white. Um, they're not all pictures of desolation. There are some wonderful celebratory pictures like William Johnson's Street Life Harlem, 1939, with, with its kind of post-Cubist influences. And then the great, and I love how this uh, dominates a wall upstairs, the great uh, aspiration uh, by Aaron Douglas. You'll see in the lower foreground the hands in chains and manacles. And then that allegorical image of uh, African-American figures who are rising up from slavery, holding the iconic implements of knowledge as they turn toward an idealized city. That city evokes an old friend, almost certainly. It's really quite remarkable how much the iconography of a famous image like that uh, drawing of the Emerald City, um, how much it draws on images of the ideal city that you see in the painting of the period, not just in Douglas's aspiration, which looks a hell of a lot like the Emerald City in his three years earlier. So if anything, um, Victor Fleming is drawing on Aaron Douglas and not the other way around. Um, but also with some of the other images of urban life that emerge, or urban uh, uh, landscapes, I should say, that uh, the that the exhibition is showcasing. I love this um, picture of Wrigley's. Wrigley's gum zooming in front of an abstracted cityscape, which I like to assume is Chicago because there's the Wrigley building in Chicago. That's where Wrigley's was, and Chicago was just starting uh, to build up at this time. But it's worth noting how, how, much, how, how much earlier than we expect to see it, it's 1937, that we're seeing abstraction, these buildings abstracted back into blocks. That could be early Rothko, um, you know, 20 years later. Um, and the way in which we almost literally have a sense of commercial art zooming into abstraction. So there's the Wrigley's ad in front of this abstracted cityscape and the sense that this is, and, and pop art, of course, also some 30 years avant la lettre, um, that this could be teaching Andy Warhol everything he needs to know, and some might say more. Um, 
Abstraction is surprisingly present in the American art of the 1930s. Here we've moved into almost pure abstraction. Again, uh, 20 years before the abstract expressionists are really, well not 20, but 15 years before the abstract expressionists are really starting to pull this together, um, evoking swing music with Louis Armstrong and then very early Pollock, um, drawing on surrealism clearly as, and cubism. Uh, there's a kind of Guernica feel to this, isn't, isn't there, uh, as he uh, moves his way toward his pure abstraction, which will end us, um, it's not quite the end of my talk, but where the abstraction will go is, um, with, uh, is to something like Norman Rockwell's The Connoisseur, which I, I really love, again, because of the way it brings commercial art and, uh, and abstraction together in a, in a humorous way. Um, but again, these urban images are in conversation with photographs of the time. It's worth noting that amidst all of this conversation about the Dust Bowl and about devastation and about loss and, uh, and poverty and the crashing economy, America was also building, it was building monumental skyscrapers during exactly this time. The Chrysler building was begun in 1928 when they thought they would have all the money in the world, but they didn't have to abandon it. They did manage to finish it. They finished it in 1930, and it was the tallest building in the world for 11 months until it was surpassed by the Empire State Building. That's what the Empire State Building looked like when it was built in 1931. You can see how it totally towers over the landscape, and this is what it looks like today. Um, and so, although uh, America was preoccupied by its falling fortunes, there's also a sense in which it is still building and aspiring, and, and, uh, and, and the, the American 20th century is at hand. These, these monumental buildings and a preoccupation with the cityscape and with skyscrapers is very much emerging in the, uh, in the art and in the, um, in the history of the period. So, there's an earlier example, which I'm really fond of, um, the Radiator Building from uh, New York, 1924. Again, you can see how it dominates its landscape in its own time. Here, oops, here it is today, completely dwarfed by the Empire State Building behind it. It's now the Bryant Park Hotel. That's the New York Public Library down there in the lower foreground for any of you who know that. The reason I'm bringing in the Radiator Building is because it was painted by George O'Keefe in 1927. George O'Keefe's landscapes uh, her and her abstract uh, images from the 1930s are uh, incredibly and justifiably famous. Much less well known are her earlier urban paintings of the uh, New York skyline at night. And here is this towering uh, image of the radiator building. And here, New York night, 1928, 1929, just as our story begins, uh, she's finishing paintings like this and then turning away from the city and toward images like the one represented here, which couldn't be more starkly differentiated in some ways. The cow skull with calico roses, she had, as you all know, she had moved uh, to the southwest, left New York City, and begun painting the landscape around her. These pictures were huge hits. As soon as she started painting them, the critics instantly saw that they were updating the Baroque Vanitas still life. 
um, and yet pulling in traditions of modern surrealism. So here's a traditional still life, uh, the, a Vanitas portrait of a still life with bouquet and skull, right, to emphasize the transitory uh, uh, nature of human existence, the, um, the sense that beauty is fragile, that death uh, is everywhere, the importance of the various kinds of symbolic iconographies. And so she's updating that with her, uh, with her cow skulls and roses. Here's a Cezanne also starting to move into uh, a modern vanitas. And these are familiar uh, comparisons. It's clear that she's updating the Vanitas tradition or, or riffing on it. But she's also picking up documentary photographs from the Dust Bowl. That is a 1936 image from the Dust Bowl. Um, and so again, that shift from that, there's, it seems to me that, and, and again, it's what this exhibition does so beautifully, is give you a sense of how much the artists of the period were often as individuals moving back and forth between a preoccupation with the urban and a preoccupation with the rural, that that's where uh, current energies were, were sort of buffeting everybody around. And you would keep coming back to this sense of devastation and blight, and then back again to cities growing up and building, and the sense that maybe America was going to pull itself out of the ashes and, um, and, and build up. I've included this one because it, again, because people don't think of O'Keeffe as an urban painter, but she very much was during the 20s before she turned to her more, uh, her more better known uh, uh, landscapes in the, in the 30s. Here she is doing another cityscape from New York, and it seems to me that it's very evocative of the, of the very famous Charles Sheeler American landscape that, uh, that is downstairs. And here's Charles Demas and the Home of the Brave from 1931. Many people, you'll know that and the Home of the Brave is the last line of the American National Anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. What you may not realize is that the Star-Spangled Banner was not adopted as the American National Anthem until 1931. And it was actually adopted because of the Depression. There had been a debate for a long time about whether America should have a national anthem, and people had argued for the Star-Spangled Banner. Other people had argued, argued against it because it was a British drinking song, and they didn't think that was a very good idea. Um, and the, the tune, that is, uh, not the poem, which of course was written by Francis Scott Key. Um, but finally, it was adopted in 1931 by Congress because it was clear that people needed something to get inspired by, and they needed to inspire some patriotism. They needed to inspire some sense of national collective identity, and creating a national anthem would be one way to do that. And so here's uh, Demuth uh, picking up on that and trying to create a specifically American sense of what modern art might look like. We can't do justice so to speak, that was a bad pun, um, to this exhibition without pausing and looking at what Joe Jones does with American Justice, um, what, surely the most brutal painting in this exhibition, one of the most unforgettable. Jones likened his image of a lynching to a medieval crucifixion, um, something like this perhaps. And of course, the title American Justice is a deeply sarcastic not to say, uh, you know, uh, furious. Um, the idea that there's anything just in this, that the KKK who would have set themselves up as the uh, protectors of truth, justice in the American way, um, were in any way in reality protecting justice or had anything to do with justice is a joke, uh, a very bad joke. Um, you'll notice that 
Jones has put the crosses on the KKK and that the swords that they hold are also crosses. I think, again, to suggest that sense of crucifixion, um, that she's the martyr, um, but also, of course, to suggest how very unchristian-like their, uh, their murderous violence was. And it's important that Jones has chosen to show a woman as the victim of lynching. He's made that very, very uh, careful choice because women often were the victims of lynching. The pretext that only men were lynched and that men were lynched because they had raped white women was well recognized as a pretext among the African-American community. Um, most people who, most black people who were lynched were lynched because of economic competition, because they opened a shop next to a, a white guy and then they would get accused of rape and hanged. Um, they get hanged if they were lucky. A lot of the violence was a lot more brutal than that. And so what uh, Jones is doing here is showing how often women were the victims of lynching, which indeed they were, and, uh, and, and obviously by stripping her torso, he's suggesting that she was raped before she was killed as her house was burned down um, with a flaming cross behind. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'll just say a couple of things about lynching during the period. It was very much in the news. Um, they had been, and, and you get the flaming crosses, right, that the KKK uh, burned. And it's another important uh, you know, social context to the art that's being produced here. I just want to point out that in 1934 and 1939, um, there was an attempt to pass a bill saying that lynching was bad. They had been attempting to do this since the early 1920s. Congress could never muster the energy, the will, to say that lynching was bad and that it should be stopped. The various anti-lynching bills all failed. None of them were ever passed. The last person to be lynched in America as part of racial mob violence was in 1968. 1968, the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. When you know that contexts like that are uh, occurring in the background, I think it gives a different kind of, shall we say, energy or context to paintings like Paul Sample's Church Supper. Um, which, uh, much like American Gothic, I think, uh, suggests that these people uh, who, who, are, who perhaps might think of themselves as upright citizens uh, are not necessarily all that pleasant, particularly I'm thinking of the woman in the lower right foreground who doesn't look like somebody I would want to have lunch with, um, personally. Um, nor is the man in the lower right foreground, for that matter. I'm not just going to single out the women. Um, they're a singularly grim couple. They make the, the couple in American Gothic look like a lot of fun. Um, and of course, they are, uh, they are frowning in, uh, at least some of them are, are staring and frowning uh, in disapproval at the young woman who is showing her leg, um, this kind of modernity uh, and sexual energy pushing itself into this... Uh, uh, grim, prim, puritanical church scene, um, which is maybe not all that the people in it would like to think that it is. And, um, and then I'll just finish with two final images of contrasting urban life. Again, to think about the kinds of things that these painters are saying. Another wonderful image of Reginald Marsh, and this woman is, I think, very much like uh, the blondes here who could be Jean Harlow lifting her skirt or uh, indeed as the catalog suggests Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night a Year Later with the famous uh, leg-bearing scene. And here we get another young woman who could be Jean Harlow or is modeling herself on Jean Harlow moving her way through a crowd. Um, this sense that people are modeling themselves on uh, the life of the, of the movies and the sense of the bustle and the energy of urban life 
is contrasted very sharply against my final image, Edward Hopper's wonderful Gas 1940, um, which is almost, again, there's, there's a sense of abstraction moving its way in. The gas pumps are abstracted uh, to the point where they're almost pure shapes and just this one lone figure lost in this landscape on this road that seems to be going nowhere. I'll stop there. I think uh, we have a couple of minutes if anyone has a question. Thank you very much. Um, could you comment on what to me seems to be a um, almost a brave gesture by some of the artists and the documentary comments that you've already made? For example, in 20 Cent Cinema, the notices for the films are the direct opposite of the title. Mm. So you have things like a love story made in blood. Mm. And on the right-hand side, most of the men behind The Hustler are looking at the peep show, which is the reality of the same cinema. Yeah. Is it a very brave thing in the 30s to paint the hypocrisy as well as to comment on it? It's a good question. I'm not sure if it's any braver in the 30s than it always is. Um, but I certainly think that, it, for me, it's one of the marks of, of great artists and certainly of great modern art. Um, because as you, as you move through the 20th century, the limits placed on artists legally were being lifted. So it was becoming easier in that sense. I mean, you know, of course, 100 years earlier, artists would want to be brave, and you know, but you'd risk actually having your head chopped off or something. I mean, not in the 19th century, but you know what I mean. And so certainly Flaubert right, uh, went to trial for, for daring to suggest that a woman could have an affair, even if she died at the end. Um, and, um, and so the, the sense that, um, that, that you know, and, and I, I should have said, um, I knew I was going to have some issue with time, so I was trying to run through it. The Cummings poem at the beginning was, of course, not printed in full for many years, so it was, uh, it was you know, bleeped out. Uh, so I think artists have always done what they can, and, you know, Hemingway at the same time was fighting with his editor to get obscenities into the stories because that's how people talk. And so it's partly about realism, but ultimately it's a point about truth-telling. And, and that is one of the, the traditional differences between uh, 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 real art, for lack of a better term, and commercial art, which is how, how interested it, it is in the truth. And if it's trying to get at some truth as the artist perceives it, then that's one of the ways that traditionally we've distinguished between that and art that was purely commercially motivated. So I would say that that uh, attempt to push beyond hypocrisy is always, uh, certainly in the modern era, by which I don't just mean the 20th century, I mean in the technical you know, 18th century onward, um, uh, modern era is always a driving force for artists and, and certainly I think for a lot of great art. I wonder whether you think that with the onset of abstract expressionism that comes after this period, whether there's a, something is lost through the lack of representational art and lack of comment, the kind of comment you've been talking about on American society. Well, that is, um, in one sense, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a personal and subjective question, right? Do I think something was lost? Is there anything I regret? Um, so personally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you do lose something, uh, but you gain things as well, right? I mean, art, you know, art moves in the direction that it moves in, and it's not, you know, I'm not the king of art. They're not going to let me say this is how it should be. But, um, but yeah, I think that where art can have meaningful interactions with history and politics without becoming didactic, without becoming programmatic or agitprop, and that's where I think this art. I mean, and I will say, as a as a literary scholar. First and foremost, 
I don't think there's any question that the visual arts in America in the 1930s leave the literary arts behind, briefly. The great, uh, the great uh, uh, writing um, of America, uh, of American modernity is happening in the 1920s and then it's, there's a few, there's a handful of great works in the 30s, even fewer in the 40s, and then it starts to pick up again in the 50s, um, in my view. So the, but you know, what film is doing, even if, even if it's being, you know, sentimental and even if it's being, you know, if it's being hypocritical in some of the ways we're talking about, uh, it's, it's doing, it's producing amazing, amazing texts. And, and then where you really see, I think the energy and the innovation and the, the, the emotion, whether it's anger or hope or, um, you really, really see it in the, in the great art, the great uh, representational art of the period. So yeah, I would welcome a return to more representational art, but yeah, again, as I say, nobody's asked me yet, but <laughs> maybe they will. <laughs> I think that's all we've got time for. Please join me once again in thanking Sarah Churchwell for this brilliant talk. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.